follow along. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Athram, he, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that it's living, that it's true, that we have a copy of it, that we can come together and read as your people, that we can sit in with sound preaching and teaching. Lord, I lift up Kenny this morning as he brings the message. I thank you for his diligence to learn, to dig into your word, and how he presents his word so that we can understand better. So, Lord, guide him, guide his words, guide his thoughts. Be with him as he brings the message. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. This morning in our study through the book of Numbers, we come to probably one of the stranger stories, maybe even in all the Bible. Uh, There's a lot in here that we might find jarring or even shocking uh, for a number of reasons, but I think chiefly among them, maybe it raises the question, what is up with all the snakes? (laughs) I, for one, do not care for snakes. Um, I just, I I like to think of it as one of the many similarities between myself and Indiana Jones. In fact, if you remember the first Indiana Jones movie when they uncover the lid of the tomb and he looks in there at the floor and he says, snakes, why did it have to be snakes? Uh, Maybe many of us feel that same way about this passage of scripture. Why did it have to be snakes? So we're going to unpack this a bit, um, and we're going to see that this story, though maybe a strange one, is a very important one. It's an important one in how it connects us to Jesus, how it points to Jesus, and how it points to his work on the cross on our behalf. And so uh, we don't have to guess. We don't have to get creative and guess on how this points us to Jesus, because as we're going to see in a minute, Jesus tells us 
how this points to him. In John chapter 3, and if you want to turn there now just to kind of uh, be there, uh, in just a moment we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the story. But before we go there, I do want to take a moment to unpack this scene a bit because it is strange. And there's a lot happening here in this short story, and I want to make sure that we are understanding exactly what is going on so that we can understand mostly how this points us to Jesus. So Numbers 21, uh, as we work our way through this, starting in verse 5, we're going to see a number of things. First thing that we see is sin. We see the sin of the people here in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Here's the thing. This is no mere temper tantrum. We see here that the, the people have spoken against God. And the language that's used here is very even violent. They have spoken against God. They have spoken against his anointed one and they despised his life-giving food. They have despised, they loathe, they detest the food that he has given them. This is not a temper tantrum. Most of us that are parents or grandparents, you know a temper tantrum about food. My kids can tell the difference between store brand bologna and Oscar Mayer bologna. Uh, they, one time, mid-sandwich, they picked up on it and they were like, what are you trying to pull on us? What kind of shenanigans are you up to? And so I think even at this moment, we have a Tupperware of bar S bologna in our refrigerator with two slices missing from it because the children have rejected it. And now it's a special treat for the dog. <laughs> we know what a what a picky food tantrum looks like. This is not that. This is a people who had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, delivered from the bondage of their oppressors, led to the mountain of God, given his law so that they know how to be his people, then led to the very border of the land in which he had promised their forefathers they would get, all the while being sustained by life giving manna miraculously given from the hand of God. And here they say, we despise it. This, in a sermon that I heard on this very passage from John Piper, he said, this is arch blasphemy. This is not a temper tantrum. This is blasphemy in the highest order. This is not simply passive complaining, but active an intentional rebellion. It's as if they could see the hand of God outstretched to them, delivering them his grace and his mercy through life-giving food, and they spit on it and smack it away. I hate your food. Why have you done this to us? And so, rightly, next we see his judgment. In verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So first let's talk about fiery serpents. Uh, 
Uh, I've seen and I've heard some commentators get a little wild with this. They say fiery serpents. What we could be talking about here is fire-breathing dragons. Now, that's a little silly, (laughs) frankly. Um, So what are these fiery serpents? Likely, these are poisonous snakes native to the Sinai region, possibly adders, vipers, or cobras. I will take the fire-breathing dragons. Thank you. Fiery literally is burning that's what that word literally, mean, literally means, is burning, and probably refers to the sensation of their bite. So when they bite you, it causes burning agony from the bite and from the poison that is injected into you from that bite. So the CSB then renders that poisonous snakes, and the NIV venomous snakes. So what we have here is poisonous snakes biting people, causing burning agony and death. But notice here, the Lord sent these snakes. This was divine judgment on the people. God was angry at the people because of their sin, and so now he has sent snakes in to bite and kill them. The burning snake bites and the venom was the wrath of God on a sinful people. This was no, this was no mere happenstance. This was no episode of calamity that just happened upon them on their journey. This was God punishing them because of their sin of rejection and rebellion against him. This is divine wrath and judgment they have sinned against him and so he has sent among them poisonous venomous snakes to bite them and kill them this is a severe situation and so then we see then at the beginning of verse 7 we see repentance repentance on behalf of the people they say this We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They say this to Moses. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Interestingly, we, uh, unlike some of the other divine judgment passages, we don't see kind of maybe the typical formula where we see, you know, judgment on the people, Moses interceding on their behalf, immediately and God relenting this time we see before Moses says anything or does anything the people come to Moses and confess we have sinned against the Lord and against you we have sinned against God and his anointed one we have spoken against him we have spoken against you they understand that what is happening to them is from God That as these snakes have made their way into their camp and are biting people and killing people, they are saying this is from the Lord. This is divine judgment on us. And so now they're asking Moses, pray for us that God might take away the serpents. Interestingly, uh, they ask Moses to pray on their behalf. They don't ask him to, to, to fight the snakes, 
right? They're not looking for some sort of pest control here. They understand that this is from God, that this is judgment from God. And the only hope that they have is that somebody would intercede to God on their behalf and that God might relent in his judgment on them. So Moses intercedes. Moses prays for them because the only one who can save from the wrath of God is God himself. Moses prays for the people. We see then in the second part of verse 7, an intercession. Uh, So unlike his tantrum at Kadesh, uh, this time Moses intercedes for the people uh, immediately. And I think when we read this, I think the quickness of how this all plays out kind of sets the tone. I think the simplicity here almost denotes the severity and the gravity of the situation. I mean, the people sin. They speak out against God. They reject him. God judges them. People die. The people cry out. Moses prays. I think it shows, as this plays out, the severity, the gravity of what is happening So Moses prays, and then God acts on behalf of the people. We see here provision for the people in verses 8 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, now this is where it gets strange, right? Why a snake? Why a snake? Of all the ways that God could intercede now on their behalf, why a snake? Why not a lamb? Why not point to the sacrificial system that was put in place to cover their sin? Why not say, look at a lamb and its blood offered up on your behalf. Why a, a snake? I mean, that's just, that's just icky. Right? A snake. Put up a snake on a pole so that we look at it and then we're, we're healed? What's going on here? The answer is in a paradox. The image of the thing saves from the thing itself. From this calamity takes the form of the calamity itself. If you were bitten by a poisonous snake, you looked at the image of a snake and you lived. The picture, what's happening here is, this is the picture of the curse of God saving from the wrath of God. John Piper explains this well. He says, The means God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. And it's important that we notice something here too. That this is not preventative. So this image is given. It's not to ward off snake bites. This isn't some ritualistic magical charm moses isn't like the witch doctor here giving some talisman that will ward off evil and snakes 
This was given to save you after you had been bitten by a snake. This was given so that when you've been bitten and venom is coursing through your body and you are under divine judgment because of your sin, without an act of God on behalf, you are dead. So instead of this being given to protect, this was given as salvation for those who otherwise were doomed. And the thing that is given then was representative. It was an image of the very thing that had doomed them. The image of the curse is now provision to save them from the curse under which they were suffering and dying. So now this connects us then to John 3. John chapter 3. And this is a scene and a story that most of us may be familiar with. This is uh, John 3, just to remember the background, set the context here. Uh, Nicodemus who is one of the Jewish leaders, uh, he comes to Jesus to have a conversation. Uh, obviously, he's intrigued. Uh, he's a leader of, of the Jewish people, a religious leader. And so he wants to check Jesus out, but he's not fully bought in yet. Right? He's not willing yet to go all in, so he comes under the cover of night. Hey, Jesus, let's meet up for some drinks late, and, and let's talk about what's going on here. And so he meets up with Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, look. We know that you're from God, okay? You, you couldn't do the stuff that you're doing if you weren't from God. And in, in kind of Jesus conversation fashion, it just goes every which way on Nicodemus other than the way he expected. Because from there, Jesus kind of gets into this idea of being born again. Right? He, you know, so instead of just affirming Nicodemus, you're exactly right. Ooh. I was astute. Of course I'm from God. In fact, I am the son of God, your Messiah. No, instead he just tells him, you got to be born again. And, and Nicodemus, in the midst now of this sort of alarming theological conversation he's found himself in the midst of, uh, in the necessity of new birth, you know, he's responding, confused, perplexed. What? Be born again? How does that pan out? You're supposed to go back up in there and do it again? What? And instead of Jesus being sympathetic, he actually kind of chastises him. He's just like, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? When he's describing this idea of the new birth and the spirit moving like the wind, probably, likely, uh, a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, which, to, which is a vision of the movement of the spirit given to cause new birth and regeneration under the promised new covenant that was to come. This is the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, pointing him back to what Scripture has promised will happen to the people of God in the new covenant that is provided. The people that could not obey God, provision would be made so that they would be given new hearts New spirits that would be able to obey God. Now, John chapter 3 contains uh, two of our favorite Bible verses. Two, I mean, evangelical gold here. John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, this is Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is where he spun things on Nicodemus. 
And then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But between these two precious verses, Jesus makes a startling statement to Nicodemus. John 3, 14 through 15, he tells him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referencing our story. Jesus is talking about Numbers 21. And this is strange because Jesus is comparing himself to a serpent. So if it was already icky, it gets ickier. Because Jesus is telling Nicodemus, who's just like, Whoa, what? How, new birth? He's like, just like Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Jesus, in talking with Nicodemus, we see that the new birth is necessary. That's, that's when we're talking about salvation. The new birth is necessary. That's the what that needs to happen. And then Jesus says that the way that this is made possible, how this is accomplished, is that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is raised up like the serpent in Numbers 21. How is that? What is going on here? Now, Nicodemus, he would have known this story been very familiar with this story. In fact, this, this story wasn't just like a little footnote. This, you didn't find this in the appendix of the history of Israel. This was a prominent story in their history. In fact, that bronze serpent even wormed its way. Wormed its way. That was on accident. It just kind of slithered its way into the life and the idolatry of the people. Because when we get into the history of the kings, we find that in Hezekiah's day, to perform religious reform and spiritual renewal amongst the people, he had to destroy it because they were worshiping it. I mean, you can't have anything nice. So Nicodemus, he knew what was going on here. So when Jesus tells him, you remember when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent? The Son of Man has to be lifted up too. You've got to think, if Nicodemus wasn't confused before, he's going, like the serpent? Wait a minute, wait, wait. Moses set the serpent up. That was a picture of the curse. That was an image of the judgment. That was the image of all things that were wrong. How is the Son of Man to be displayed in that way? So you're saying a picture of the curse and judgment to save the people from God's judgment upon them, and you're saying you're to do the same thing? So in this, Jesus gets at the heart of his mission and the cross that waits for him, which is to be lifted up in the form of the curse of God on sinners, so that dying sinners may look on him and live.
Again, John Piper puts it so well. Jesus in the place of the snake is portrayed as evil and a curse. This is what is so shocking. The snake is evil. The snakes were killing people. The snake on the pole is a picture of God's curse on the people. So it was with Jesus. Jesus came to become just as that serpent on the pole was to be displayed as the curse of God on the people. He was come he came to take on himself the same thing. Paul carries the same idea. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says this, for our sake he made him to be sin, the curse who knew no sin. Jesus didn't have any snake bites. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the Old Testament even saw this, this paradox. The Old Testament foresaw this paradox as well. Isaiah prophet Isaiah foretold this in chapter 43, verses 4 through 6. He says this, prophesying about the coming Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we see, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, cursed and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Rejected God. Spoken against him. Despised his food and his life-giving mercies. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The curse. The wrath of God, the divine judgment and God's anger against sinners is being foretold as coming upon Jesus. Martin Luther said this. No doubt the prophets all foresaw that Christ would become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel and blasphemer. That ever was or could be in the world. Being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He is not now an innocent person without sins. Not now the son of God born of the Virgin Mary. But a sinner who carries the sin of Paul. Who was a blasphemer, an oppressor, and a persecutor. Of Peter who denied Christ. Of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer and caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. In short, Christ bears all the sins of all people in his body. It was not that he himself committed these sins, but he received the sins that we had committed. They were laid on his own body that he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. 
God is angry against sin. God must punish sin. And instead of sending poisonous snakes into the camp, Christ takes the curse. On the cross, Jesus visibly displayed the curse of God on sin as he himself bore the wrath of God in place of sinners. Just as the image of the serpent was the picture of the wrath of God, so the crucified Lord is the picture of the wrath of God, cursing and condemning the sinner. But the good news of the gospel is that wrath is being spent on the cross. The curse is being reversed as the Lord takes on its form. The penalty of sin, death, and hell are being paid in full in the form of a crucified Savior. Luther again says, Here you see how necessary it is to believe in the divinity of Christ. For to overcome sin of the world, death, the curse, and the wrath of God himself is not the work of any creature, but of the divine power. The people were bitten by the snakes. The people suffered the wrath of God for their sin and rebellion. And they had no place to look but God himself. Even Moses was helpless to cure them outside of just praying that God would intervene on their behalf. It takes God to save sinners from the wrath of God. The Son of Man is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and done what only God can do, and that is save sinners from the penalty of their sin. To save sinners from the penalty of their sin by taking that sin upon himself. So then, that leaves us now with some questions make some final applications here this morning. So Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and the doomed people were to look at it. They were to look at it and live. It was the look of faith. Now the same exhortation is given to us today. As sinners condemned before God, we have been given provision by God himself, Jesus and his cross. So two questions to ask ourselves this morning. First of all, What are we looking at? What are we looking at? The look of faith was only as effective as the thing it beheld. What are we looking at? This is one of those moments, if there's ever a time to have a come to Jesus sermon, this is a come to Jesus sermon. What are we looking at? It's the object of faith. That is effective. It was the look of faith was only as effective as the thing it beheld. It was the object of that faith, what God had provided for their salvation. See, faith, faith in and of itself, just simply faith is not magic. It's not an intrinsic force that does things. It's the it's what your faith is placed in that makes it effective. And we know this. Because if anybody is a sports fan, you see this kind of language tossed around a lot. Keep the faith. I remember in 2004 when the Boston Red Sox went on their 
magic run and won the World Series for the first time since 1918. And you heard all the, the Red Sox fans as they were going through their, the playoffs and using the terminology, just keep the faith. Just believe. In fact, once they won it all and there was celebration, the, those Red Sox fans that were joining in that victory were called the faithful. And it sounds good, but here's the thing. Faith in your team doesn't do you any good when your team sucks. You can muster up all the faith that you want, but I mean, if they've had a bad owner for 20 years, it's not going to do you any good. But don't get me started. It's, the, it's what the faith is in that makes it effective. And the people of Israel were told to behold the image of the curse that God had provided for them. They weren't told just to look anywhere. They were told to look at the serpent. So the question before us is, what are we looking at? What have we put our faith in? Here's the question. What have we put our faith in, and is it worthy of it? Can it hold up? Can it truly do what we need, and that is to save us from our sin and offer us the hope of life everlasting? Can it get us to the John 3.16 moment? Or is it insufficient? Make sure we're looking in the right place. What are we looking at? Anything outside of Jesus will let you down. There's only one name given under heaven by which men may be saved. That's Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't look anywhere else. Secondly, how are we looking? How are we looking? So when we consider this, when we consider this idea of Christ becoming a curse, Christ becoming sin on our behalf, Christ taking on the penalty of the wrath of God for us who were condemned and doomed as though there was serpent venom flowing through our veins, how then do we consider Christ? So one thing that the people of Israel did not experience when they were looking at the bronze serpent was boredom. This, there was no ho-hum religious go-through-the-motion situation here. There was no obligatory practice to get through before lunch and football. They weren't bored. In that moment. And they weren't discussing the color of the carpets, whether we should have pews or chairs, the pastors wearing jeans. There's nothing trivial going on here. They were a desperate people looking to the one thing that could save them from death, knowing that without this provision of God, they would have no hope even as they were perishing. How precious then was this symbol of curse and death. I mean, we talk about, and rightly so, the, the ickiness of the serpent. How precious was that bronze serpent to the people who were dying from the wrath of God? That this was given to them. Look, and you will live. How precious was the sight of that snake on a pole? 
It was a symbol of curse and death, but in fact, it was bringing them life and salvation. So then, how precious do we regard our Savior when we contemplate him lifted up as a curse in our stead? Is it just business as usual? Or do we look both in desperation, knowing that here lies our only hope? I have one place but to look to live. One hope given to me. And then in our utmost joy, as the one who has bought our pardon and ushers us into the very presence of God. How are we looking? And how do we consider Jesus? Is he precious to us? Or is our Sundays just another day of the week? So in closing, here's an exhortation uh, from singer songwriter and hymn writer Matt Papa, who's actually one of the writers of that last song that we sung. He says this, all of us have been bitten by sin. All of us hear the hissing, hypnotizing allure of idolatry and pleasure. There is one hope, lift your eyes, from one who bears the fang-shaped scar, I urge you this weekend to attend corporate worship, not merely to sing or merely to listen, but to look, to gaze. Look and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are truly God and creator. You are truly the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of your will and might. Every one of us here must confess that we have not regarded you as worthy. Even this week, we have complained, we have spoken against you, we have despised your good gifts given to us. We confess this to you. We ask for forgiveness for our sins, knowing that you have made full and final provision for our sins in your Son on the cross. Help us to look all the more to Jesus, who is worthy of all adoration, all worship, all love, all satisfaction. Help us to look at him in such a way as he deserves, knowing that he is our only hope, our only salvation, our only true love and joy in this world and the next. We ask this in his name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing, when I survey the wondrous cross. <laughs>